Welcome to your second Beer Supervision, the podcast where we talk about the joys of working in mental health over a cold brew. My name is Aaron Rajamani, and I'm here with my co-host, Jesse Richardson. Oh, we are back, Aaron. Wow, oh. second podcast. What a milestone. <laughs> I, I didn't think we'd get through the first one, uh, but, yeah. but here we are. Um, COVID tried to stop us. Yeah, yeah, I had a bit of a break, but you wouldn't know because we didn't post the first one. Yeah, yeah, we, we decided it would probably be a good idea mm. to um, not post an episode and then wait, you know, two months between posting <laughs> So uh, this one has been recorded, uh, you know, a, li- a little bit further apart than, than what we would usually like to do, but yeah. uploaded within that two-week period number. Nonetheless. Nonetheless. All right. So if you haven't joined us before or need a reminder, um, so the plan for this podcast is that we have a chat about um, our life working in mental health and what that's been like for us. Sometimes we'll bring on a guest to talk about their experiences as well. And while we're doing it, um, we'll have a nice beverage, a nice beer um, to go with that. And that's where the beer part comes in. Exciting. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, so what have we got to, what have we got today for a beer? Um, well, so I went I went down to the local Dan's again um, mm-hmm. and I had in mind, yeah, let's let's go for a local Gippsland beer. Yes. Um, yeah. as I did last And I was very excited last for episode. that. Yes, and um, well once again I have failed to deliver on the Gippsland beer. Um, well, just out of uh, pure leaving <laughs> leaving it a little bit too late. Oh, um, oh. So I, I went to the local heroes part of Dan Murphy's and there was there was nothing nothing cold there. So instead I went to the fridge section and I've got us here today a Huey Aussie Pale Lager. And now the reason I picked this one is the, the Huey uh, Aussie Pale Lager is from Goldburn in New South Wales. Oh, yeah? But the reason I picked this one is for the little blurb on the back and that reads every drop of Huey beer helps support Aussie farming communities doing it tough. Check out HueyBeer.com.au for more info. And I think that is a bloody good reason to crack a beer, Aaron. That is an excellent reason. I'm feeling better about drinking beer in a weekday already. Oh, yes. Fantastic. Like we needed an excuse. That's (laughs) very true. (laughs) Most important part of the podcast right here. Three, two, one. Mm. Ooh, oh, that is crisp. That's, yes, I'm a fan of that one. I've waited all day for this. <sighs> ah, yes, yes, we are back. Mm. Ooh, yeah, it's pretty good. I'm liking oh. it. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa! It's a good fault, solid that's, first. Yeah, that's not a review, is it? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I wouldn't dare give the review <laughs> yes. before the review section. No, I'm, I'm, I think it's a, you know, mm. a very good, good start. That's smooth. Yes, right. cool. All right, so this week, our main topic, we're going to be talking about therapy and what that's like, mm-hmm. um, and um, that's a big part of what we do in mental health, obviously a big part of sitting down with clients and working through um, what they'd like to work on. Um, and so in order for us to talk about that well, we've gotten in a special guest, our resident clinical psychologist, Jesse Richardson. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse. Oh, hello, I'm going to I'm gonna have to pull you up there just, just a little bit. <laughs> Not exactly a clinical psychologist just yet. Oh, no. A registrar, but, <laughs> but uh, I hope to one day be a clinical okay, psychologist. Okay, don't get up too so, much. All right, but. Yes, um, but uh, hey, that's, that's me. I'm the guest. <laughs> um, no, I think we were, um, yeah, we were thinking... Uh, it's probably a, a good opportunity to um, look at look at mental health from a bit more of a psychology lens in this week. Mm, yeah, um, I guess we touched a fair bit on on mental health. Um, sorry, not mental health. Uh, social work last night, and mm. and um, so 
I also thought we could um, add in the spin of, um, you know, how, how that's been, you know, working with clients in, um, in the midst of coronavirus. Yeah, let's talk a bit about that first before we get into the nitty gritty of therapy. Um, yeah, has things changed much for you when you've been working um, since lockdown and COVID's been around? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, mo- the most obvious one has to be telehealth. Um, yeah, true. Yeah, you know, we, we weren't really doing any telehealth. Mm. prior to to covid in in fact i'd done none yeah and um so i think that's that's the biggest change and adjustment for uh working working during coronavirus what, what, what do you think yeah i think it's like in some ways a very good thing because it's kind of i don't think mm. something it would ha- take something this big to get an organization as large as ours to change something so fundamental to our practice I, th- I think you know, rural rural services um, should really be at the forefront of uh, telehealth, just given the wide wide range of mm. um, a- you know areas that we we do service. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's good that we have it now, though it does pose its own challenges because working over a video call um, and doing things like therapy is quite different to doing it face to face. Yeah, what are some differences you've noticed in trying to do it face to face? Well, I think. Uh, the- you know, engaging engaging people is is, I think, significantly harder over over telehealth. And so, you know, as as we mentioned in our last session, Aaron and I, we we both work primarily with with children, and so that's been a really huge difference. Having to change how we how we engage kids through a screen rather than you know face face to face you know when when we do things face to face there's so much more scope i think for creative ways of engaging Mm -hmm. people um but you know you're really quite limited with a with the screen and i think that's been the trickiest part yeah i think yeah it's just some clients that engaging over a screen is just not going to happen mm. as much as you try. Yeah. Or some, some things that would just be inappropriate to try and yeah. work with over a screen. We, Jesse uh, was just having this discussion today um, yeah, about the difficulties of um, working over a screen and some and some clients, it's just an issue that you just wouldn't try working over a screen. Yeah. You really need to be face-to-face yeah. to do effective work. Yeah, that's for sure. And then then you've got the, the difficulty of, of clients who maybe don't have access to... Uh, adequate telehealth services, and so then then they um, they rec- they want their session done over 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 a phone. And uh, I don't know if any of you guys have out there have tried talking to a kid over the phone, <laughs> <laughs> like, like a six year old kid, <laughs> and try to engage them over the phone. But I don't reckon I've had sessions last longer than about ten minutes. Yeah, that. yeah. and that is a long ten minutes. <laughs> How you going? Good. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing with homeschooling? I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another thing that's been, been, I think, quite a challenge is during COVID, just the lack of other services that you can refer to, other resources, um, and obviously the things that would normally be supportive, like school and routine, mm. are causing more issues that you can't really resolve because they're stuck at home. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, uh, something... Uh, I've noticed as kind of like a common factor for a lot of the kids I've been working with. It's like uh, parents and kids alike have have really come to appreciate the respite and the benefit that services such as like school and work can provide. It's yeah. just, just a bit of a break from home and the family. Hey, I, I've been noticing that having to work from home 
man, I much prefer going out into the office and just having some space separating from work and from home. No, I'll be seeing you, Aaron. Oh, that's Aww. nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. So you, you don't know what you're missing until it's gone. I'm sure a lot of us are realizing that now. Yeah. But yeah. Um, do you feel like it's having much of an impact in terms of um, workload or the kinds of work you're doing in terms of mental health? Um, the workload's changed. Like the, the one thing I think I find the most frustrating about it is particularly working uh, in, in the service that we work in. Uh, we're transitioning at the moment to everything being online. And so mm. I think in, in terms of workload, you know, how often I'm seeing clients isn't, isn't really changing, but I know I've had to make some pretty significant adjustments to how I go about doing more administrative tasks and how I manage, manage that. Okay. Yeah, so I'm, I'm noticing, like, you know, if uh, I have a few days consistently where I'm working at home, uh, which Aaron can t- testify, I'm really bad at working. From home. <laughs> I'm in the office all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's not the, not the best. But um, you know, if if you do have a few days where you're just smashing out telehealth consultations, you then have to uh, go through the backlog of writing notes and doing follow up. In um, you know, when when you get back into the office, and and that's mm. something that I, I find particularly tricky. Like, I'm not the biggest fan of delaying note no writing for yeah. that long. Yeah, it is my greatest weakness. Any kind, <laughs> any kind of paperwork. You need to, if you need to get me, that's how you get me. <laughs> <laughs> any administrative duties, and I am not into it. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it has made some differences, and maybe that's something we'll touch back on in future episodes if, as things evolve. Mm. But it seems like things, at least in rural Victoria, are starting to ease a bit, which is quite nice. Yes, we can... We can meet and do a podcast. Yeah, we're, so, we're here now. Yeah, so that's great. Go out for a succulent Chinese meal. Oh, yes. Yes. That'd be good. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So, um, how will we get on to um, the main topic for this evening? Um, so... Psychology, therapy, all that good stuff, bread and butter of much of what you'll do if you work in mental health, sitting down with a client, having a conversation with them and working through the different issues that are going on, issues they may not even be aware of or things that you think will improve their life and having that kind of um, yeah, ongoing conversation with them. Um, from the perspective of a psychologist, um, what does it look like? What what would you say your aims are? Oh, have we got one coming on the show? Huh? Have we got one coming on the show? I mean, I hope so, but in your opinion. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> in your vague opinion oh, on okay. psychology. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so, <sorry. laughs> sorry. I was too busy thinking about cracking a gag and I completely forgot what it was. <laughs> Come on, we have, we have limited time. Come on, <laughs> let's get on this. Aims of therapy. In your opinion, as a psychologist, what are you looking to achieve? Uh, yeah, so uh, I guess if we, if we think about you know, what psychology is more broadly, we're looking at uh, understanding how people think, behave, and learn. And so then really applying that into a uh, therapeutic setting. Um, you know, learn, it's kind of like going on a bit of a journey with, with a client. Uh, it's like your client is walking up a staircase and, and you're, you're the hand railing. You know, as, as much as you're learning about your client and how they think, 
behave and, and learn things, um, you, there is much learning that about themselves as well. And right. so, um, you know, treating uh, mental health conditions from from that sort of sort of lens, I think, is is really kind of at, at, at the foundation of, of what we what we do in psychology. And then, you know, applying on top of that, you know, different therapeutic modalities, styles, and uh, you know, working through, uh, you know, mental mental health disorders. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we had a few, had a few like ideas of different, I guess, significant therapies that we tend to use that are quite well known and popular. So we just go through them and get, I guess, get your thoughts out when you're, I guess, your practical thoughts out when you're trying to use these therapies. Um, so the example I thought of is um, cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy, quite popular. A lot mm-hmm. of um, it's baked into our mental health system in many ways. Like, want to run us through how that works and... Yeah, so cognitive behaviour therapy, it's, it's essentially the, the bread and butter in, yeah. in psychology. Um, so the, I, I know the, the degree I did, the, the clinical masters, uh, you know, that's, so that's pretty much at the core of that. Mm. The main therapy that they they teach us there is, is cognitive behaviour therapy. And there's some pretty good reasoning for that. Mm. It is, um, you know, it has quite a fair bit of evidence uh, behind it. Uh, I think you'll find it is the most widely researched therapy out there. Okay. Um, and the, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the mental health care plan system it runs based based off that. So, okay. you know, we, we, we learn in, in cognitive behavior therapy to stick to about a 10 session session structure. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's, I guess, yeah, with, 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 uh, you know the the training that we we receive in psychology is mm. it's uh, predominantly CBT focused, and then there are other therapies that you learn. I think on top of that as well, but I don't think it's uh, you you know you don't learn enough to really be able to then a- apply that out in the actual real world. You then have to go and do I think a, a fairly significant amount of. Uh, continuing professional development mm. in order to upskill yourself in, in those therapies. Okay, so you don't so you kind of understand it in some sense in the degree, but then you need to actually get the very specific skill to apply it later. Yeah, on. yeah. So obviously, you know, there's there's a fair few different therapies mm. out there. Um and um you know we, we you can't really chunk all of it into into the degree. Mm. And so um you know the the big focus is on on CBT. Then they might have a uh, you know, a few sub sort of sections on that on, you know, maybe acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, dialectical behavior therapy, uh, schema therapy and, and stuff like that. It, I guess it depends on the, on the university. Yeah. Um, Why the focus yeah. on CBT? Um, and so again, I, I think it, it'll probably have uh, a lot to do with the, the research base behind it. Okay. So, you know, as, as psychologists, we, we are trained to be both um, scientists and practitioners. So, okay. Uh, in the uh, practice that we do, the therapies that we do, uh, evidence base is is what we're after. Right. We we want to be working um, with clients using therapies that we have an evidence base behind it that says yes, this this has efficacy, this works, and um, and your know, CBT does have you know a, a fair amount of evidence for multiple mental health conditions that says this this works. Um, however, not the be all and end all. Yeah. Um, so you don't just ask them just a bunch of questions you might find interesting and see what happens. So there's a reason behind the madness. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. 
Um, That's good to know. But I think as, you know, one, one thing I learned like really early on in, um, in my degree, when, they, when, they, when we transitioned from learning about CBT into actually applying it in practice, uh, in, in our placements was um, trying to, to really rigidly follow that, that 10 session structure is, uh, is not at all easy. Um, right. And I think, you know, for a lot of clients, there's just, just so much going on that you've really got to kind of be flexible and, and, and have the ability to apply those concepts and principles really, really quite uh, flexibly. Okay. So is that a word flexibly? I'm pretty sure that's a word. It sounds, it sounds it, like a word. It feels weird to say. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, because um, yeah, yeah, clients' lives don't fit so neatly into the, the kind of formula or thing that you're, that's prescribed by the therapy, so you need to kind of be a bit flexible with that. Yeah, and that's it. Like, um, take, take the people that we work with, for example. Mm. Um, so teenagers that, that we work with, um, you know, while, while they might be at an age where you could, you could potentially start looking at engaging in some, some CBT, um, you know, their lives are so chaotic that it's like, well, how do we, how do we even begin uh, doing, going really, really rigidly in that, that 10 session structure? And so instead of going into like um, deep into maybe the thoughts side of things and, and the cognitive side of things, uh, we, we maybe take a bit more of a focus on the behavior and kind of like mastering the basics of, you know, how do we, how do we engage at least in behaviors that are going to ensure good mental health rather than uh, focusing so much on, on the, you know, cog, cognitions and um you know that the core beliefs around why they're there because it's kind of like you know if, if you if you've got a person whose uh life is just a complete shambles and, and chaos mm. um getting getting you know down to the nitty-gritty it, it can be it can be quite tough because um yeah, sometimes it's, they're just not ready for it yeah right yeah sometimes it um yeah it takes time to build that rapport and break down those layers of trust before they're willing to share anything of real substance, and so you can take that time. You can't just launch in and. Oh yeah, things. yeah, and and that's that's a big, big point you make right there. I mm. think um, you know you can you can have whatever therapeutic modality you like that suits you, but at the end of the day, if you can't form a relationship with your client that is based on like, you know, unconditional positive regard, trust, and and all of that, then you know applying the therapy isn't going to really do um, do a huge amount. Because it's just not going to take on board what it is you're you're trying to right to yeah get across. So a huge part of therapy is building the interpersonal skills. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's like we are one of the one of the real like the the concepts in in CBT that, that we I guess try to to bring about in in our clients is at the end of you know therapy we we empower our clients to be their own therapist. So mm. we go through these. Um, Provide a bunch of psychoeducation on why you know certain behaviours contribute to the mood that they're experiencing. Yeah, and how um, you know psychoeducation around why certain mental health conditions exist, and then how we can we can really treat those symptoms through um, getting getting on top of our cognitions and our our behaviours. And if you can, it's it's like um, what's that um, thing about fish? You give a man a fish and you can feed him for a day or something. <laughs> a fishing rod, and and uh, lo and behold, he's fed for life. 
Whoa. Yeah, it's kind of... That's very wise, Jesse. Yeah. Wow, did you come up with that? I reckon I absolutely butchered that one. Um, <laughs> it's something. I, I've always been a pretty uh, average fisherman. I feel um, wiser. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so like, you know, if, if we can enc- like empower people to you become their own therapists and to know know a lot more and, and learn so much more about themselves and why they do things mm. um, and how to, how to manage that themselves, then, then we've effectively... You've done it, Dan. Our job there. I uh, I love telling my clients um, that you know at, at the end of the day, I I hope that once we're done with therapy, I never have to see you again. Right. And um, you know that 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 for me is like you know not not in a uh, nasty sort of sense of like I don't like you. I I, I hope <laughs> I'm never burdened by your existence again. <laughs> but more of a like you know if if I know that like I don't have to see you again and, and you're doing really well, then you know. My, my job's been done there and yeah. you're, you have those skills to then function and manage yourself effectively in the outside world. Yeah. So the measure of success is not being reliant on therapy. Yeah. 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 And, you yeah. know, there's some clients who definitely don't fit the mold of that. Sure. Um, where that okay. is the measure of success. Um, I, th- I think particularly in, in community mental health uh, with, with some of the kids that we have, um, you know, I've, I've got a couple of kids where the measure of success is, is significantly lower than that. Yeah. Okay. And and so yeah, being being flexible around that sure. as well. All right. So yeah, this is this beer is really this is a good beer. I am enjoying yeah. this a lot. Yeah. This I get really well. just I think it's a combination of the taste of the beer and the fact that every drop is supporting Aussie farmers. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Tastes like altruism. Oh man. <laughs> Got a lot of virtues to signal. <laughs> it is good. It is yeah, good. Yeah. But oh, I reckon oh, I reckon you know coming coming out of uh, you know coronavirus lockdown, I haven't I haven't drank many beers during this <laughs> yeah. time. So like, I reckon a lot of beers are gonna taste good at, uh, at this time. So but but this is a good beer. Yeah. yeah. Like, it doesn't have like the the weird aftertaste that the mm. last beer had, mm. which is a nice contrast. Yeah. Take a swig and do it. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Mm. Get it. Mm. <laughs> Hope you <did> this. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so so the next one I thought would be good to talk about is I, something that I know you're quite passionate about. You talk about it quite a lot, and I learn a lot when I'm sitting next to you talking about this topic. Um, with trauma and how that affects young people. Mm. Um and yeah, dealing with that and doing therapy in regard to trauma also has its own unique um, things you need to consider, effects that it has on a person, and yeah, yeah. So yeah, trauma is a you know a topic that I find pretty interesting, um, and I think that's because I think when working in mental health, I guess particularly acute services, you're going to be pretty hard pressed to find uh, clients that haven't had traumatic experiences yeah you know, through, throughout their life, hmm. and I think it's. You know, the, the common perception around trauma is that, um, you know, especially like in Hollywood and all of that, it's like you know, these, these returned service mm. uh, veterans who yep. have gone through uh, and seen some really horrific things and then they come back and they're, they're just not the same. You know, they have nightmares, flashbacks, uh, they dissociate back to being, uh, you know, in, in, that, in mm. that war zone. Um, and it has a really significant impact on their their ability to, Kind of get back on with, with normal life, um, but I, I think 
you know, tra the traumas can, can just occur like s from so much more than that also. So, uh, you know, some, some other examples can be you know, sexual abuse. We, we know that uh, victims of, of sexual abuse experience PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm. um, and car crashes, um, family violence is, is a big one, mm. um, and um, you know, witnessing a horrific event can also cause PTSD. So it's not necessarily something that you have to experience yourself to be like, you know, the victim of that to, um, you know, end up, end up with, with PTSD. Yeah, it's really about um, the person's perception of their environment and mm. the threat to themselves yeah. at the time. So yeah. it can really be anything. It depends on how they perceive it. Yeah, and, and, and um, you know, the, the perception of it and then how that, that's processed, how that event is processed in, mm. in the brain. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, the way that we normally process events and things that happen to us is remarkably different to the way that um, situations and events that result in PTSD are processed. Um, now, there's, again, like a, a whole podcast in itself yeah, right. on how yeah. the brain processes events and then, you know, how it does it differently within PTSD. So we, we won't go into that. But, um, you know, yeah, it's it's that notion that as, as long as there's really that fear that your life is is in danger um, and it triggers that fight or flight response and it hasn't been processed properly then then you know there's a fairly good chance you're going to experience symptoms of, of PTSD or, or trauma and I think you know when when working with kids especially in acute mental health Oh boy, it's yeah. it's not just single episode mm. trauma either, and it's um you know it's it's across the course of, of uh you know their, their their childhood. It's almost like um I think uh, Bessel van der Kolk from you know, oh, who wrote the book Kids mate. the Score. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mate. We'll have him on the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come and talk to us about trauma. Oh, no, he's, he's got a fantastic book, and Andy in it he talks about uh you know adding i think it's developmental trauma disorder or, or so, somewhere along those lines mm. into the next iteration of the dsm that really uh, kind of captures that trauma that is experienced across the the span of development rather than being like you know maybe a single event ptsd or um yeah and so um i think you know what what i what i find really interesting about trauma is, is I guess the way we, we go about treating it. I think it's, it's, uh, for something that's really quite complex and the, the treatment of it is really neat. Yeah. Like what's like, how, how, so in terms of like, you're telling me these are the steps, this is what the things that you need to do in order to get at, um, helping someone experiencing trauma. What's your first step? What's your second step? How does it go? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. I think first of all, you, you want to make sure that your client's in a good spot. Okay. Um, so no point trying to do some trauma therapy and process traumatic events. The person's still living it. Right. Yeah. So like that's just, that's mm. completely counterproductive. So yeah. we, we need to know that they're in a stable sort of safe and secure sort of environment. Would you say that's true of all kinds of therapy or more specifically trauma? Right. Um, I mean, it, it's definitely helpful for all, all kinds of therapy. I think, mm. you know, you, we see this every every day in our work mm. when we've got clients whose lives are complete chaos, particularly kids because, um, you know, kids don't necessarily have as much uh, agency over 
decisions that are made in in their life. So like you know they they can't go and just leave the house, yeah, move out of home at <laughs> age six and create a stable living environment for them. So um, I think for you know it's it's definitely really helpful for any sort of therapy if that's the case. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean you can't you know treat people if if things aren't. Uh, you know, completely stable and secure for them. But yeah. I think in in PTSD and and you know treating trauma, it's definitely something that you you want to be making sure is um, is present before you actually dive into what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if if your client's in a in a good spot, they're wanting to process some of these things and really work on treating their trauma. Mm-hmm. You, you want to make sure that they've got the skills. Uh, in the bank to be able to manage and regulate their emotions. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's similar with a lot of therapies. Yeah. We're, we're teaching people how to regulate, Yeah, how to uh, you know, identify when they are feeling dysregulated and how to bring themselves back. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in trauma therapy, we want to be able to open up the box and then put a lid back on it. Yeah. By regulate, do you mean, what do you mean exactly? Like emotions or? Yeah, yeah. So regulating those emotional experiences. Yeah. So if you think about trauma, we're, we're looking at an, an event or a series of events mm. that have caused this person to experience extreme fear. Yeah. And to be in a situation where they literally um, perceive that they're going to die. So we're talking like max fight flight sort of response here where, where their life is, is completely threatened. Mm. And um, just the essence of that is bloody terrifying, like terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, you, you want to make sure that if you're going to be going through those events with with your clients, that you can you can bring them back. So uh, you want to make sure that they can, if they, it's not really an if, when mm. they experience that extreme fear and um, you know, anxiety and, and traumatic response through discussing what's happened to them, we need to be able to bring them back okay. before you let them leave. So sure, there's no yeah. point, like it would be, it would be really, really bad mm. if you were to dive into some trauma, not give them some, the skills to regulate and then left them in the, let, like left them, Yeah, uh, had them leave the room in just a complete mess of a state. Like that is that is actually dangerous, right? Yeah. So you want to you want to make sure, I guess, at the start that they've got the ability to regulate their emotions, and so you practice that with them in session, mm. and you get them to practice it outside of session. Because when you start unpacking trauma, it's not just inside the session where they're going to be experiencing that. Mm-hmm. If if we're you know processing events that have happened to a person um, in a session. That's going to create a lot of stress uh, for for the person, and that's not just going to they're going to they're going to feel that beyond that maybe fifty to ninety minute consult that you have with them mm-hmm. processing that. So they need to be able to regulate it outside of session just as just as well as they do inside session. Mm-hmm. Um, once you've got that covered, and the person is wanting to go through that, it's then about getting them to go through. What is what has happened for them, and go through in in detail what happened in that event. And this is where the bravery comes in with with trauma therapy, because that's a terrifying thing to do. Yeah, you're asking someone to relive 
their worst experience, essentially. Mm. I don't know about you. I don't want to do that. <laughs> right? No, thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. so and, mm. and, you know, again, yeah, yeah. the relationship, the trust is, is, again, at the foundation of that. You're not mm. going to do that with someone that you don't trust or have that, that relationship with. Um, but through the process of telling that story and telling it over and over and repeatedly exposing the person to going through that again mm-hmm. and talking about it, they, they learn that even though it is something that causes them really intense emotional distress, that, it, that over time they can go through it and become a little bit like desensitised to that distress. Mm-hmm. So to the point where, you know, they can think about it or they can hear a trigger and then they don't just have a flashback or completely dissociate and break down. So being able to uh, you know, think back maybe on that event once therapy's over and even though it still causes a significant amount of pain, mm. we're not trying to get rid of that pain. It's still there. It's managing the, the symptoms that are associated with it and the impact that they have on on the person. Right. Yeah. And then once you've you've got that covered, you're then looking at dealing with all the negative core beliefs and um, schemas that that event has then created for that person. Okay. So, yeah. you know, the the you know, perception that it was it was their fault, that they're they're bad. They're unlovable. These are these are beliefs about the person that caused them really significant mm-hmm. distress and and can result in them engaging in some pretty um, unhelpful behaviours. Mm. And so you want to then, that's when you then, um, I guess from a CBT sort of lens, yeah. that's when you then just CBT the heck out of, out of those, those um, you know, maladaptive core beliefs. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. That's so interesting. And there's so much to that. There's so much to mm. learn about um, what it looks like to work with people with trauma. Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes... You might you might have the aim of you know wanting to engage in, in trauma therapy with with someone and um, they're just not ready mm. and and that's okay I think I think it's really important you know while you want to be reminding the person why you know, trauma therapy can be, can be really beneficial for them but it's something that they have to want to want to engage in if you if you force them into doing something like that that's it's just there's no value to it. Yes, it's gonna you're gonna do more damage um, mm. than you are good because you're gonna ruin that person's perception of, of you know how psychologists behave. And it's gonna decrease the likelihood of them even wanting to engage in one in the future. Um, you know the, the the dynamic would be uh, really really counterproductive if me as the therapist said, hey. We're just going to do this trauma therapy, even though you don't want to. Yeah, you, you're essentially forcing her to, to re-experience that complete um, uh, disregard of, of her her values and her rights, and um, and just taking advantage of, of her. But in, in like you know the therapeutic sort of context, and that's that's dangerous. You don't you don't want to you don't want to do that. Yeah, it's a massive responsibility. Yeah. I mean, to be, to be doing therapy in general, but in a whole, you know, a whole different way with, with trauma. Mm. Mm. 
Alright, uh, so um, a big part of what we do um, in our role um, is not just doing therapy, but also doing assessments. Um, mm. That's that's I'm sure it's a big part of what psychologists do. From what I see, yes. um, a lot of your role is with clients. Yes. Um, tell us a bit about that. Uh, yeah. Okay. So with assessments, as mm. as you mentioned, huge part of what we do in psychology. I think the main ones that we we really, I guess, do with kids is the intelligence. Uh, scale sort of assessment. Mm. So the Weschler intelligence scales um, uh, provide, I guess, the most accurate uh, measure of intelligence uh, that, that, that we have available. Mm. And they're really, really useful for just getting a nice pattern of an understanding of a, of a person's strengths and weaknesses across you know, a broad cognitive ability. Yeah. Um, so I guess they're the most common ones, but more Broadly, we, we do have some, some other assessments, you know, quite a fair few that we use as well. And I guess the reason we, we have it, have our assessments is, you know, so psychologists, um, you know, not only, I guess, do therapy, um, but we also, I guess, assist with uh, diagnostics and, and formulations for, um, you know, diagnosing mental health conditions. And a big part of that is the assessments. Because, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, yes, psychology is a science. And so we want to be coupling the diagnoses that we are making or that we are helping make with sound evidence to support what it is where we're saying is occurring here. Yeah, because I, I know some um, many times, often, when I, I see a client for the first time, um, speak to them for a while, make kind of my own like like informal assessment mm-hmm. and I'm like I reckon this these things might be the issues but ultimately there's no way to nail that down in many in many ways until mm-hmm. I go to you and like hey Jesse can we do you know a cognitive assessment or a speech assessment because I think those things might be issues mm-hmm. and I'll go to you and then you'll you'll do that for me or someone on the team will do that for me and that'll give a much clearer more concrete picture okay these are the specific issues these are things that we can go back to um, to my work and actually work on. Yeah. Whereas before they were just kind of guesses, I suppose, until mm. we actually did the assessment. Yeah, and, and that's not to say that, like, you know, the guesses or the observation and your, your clinical judgment isn't isn't sound mm. um, and that that's not, uh, you know, a, a good thing you know, for, for psychologists. But, um, you know, you want to be coupling that with something that, that says, hey, you know, not, not only do I have this clinical judgment here that is telling me that this is what is going on? Mm. But I've, I've got something here that actually supports that as well, that has research behind it that says this measures this construct. And the way that this person has scored loads on to that construct. So we can be fairly certain when we couple the observations that we've made through getting to know our clients and, and learning about them and the... Um, the assessment tools that we're using that we can be fairly sure that this is what's going on. It's like a, a really good example with, within our services, um, autism assessments. Uh, we, mm. you know, you can, you can have a fairly good uh, idea that someone has autism if you have a comprehensive understanding of the DSM and the diagnostic criteria that, that covers that. But it's a really significant diagnosis to make. Yeah, I remember when I was starting to work um, in um, in the team and I 
was learning all, um, a lot more about um, what the feel and the look like, um, what it looks like to see someone with presentations that look like autism as different things. But people with autism are so unique that they could have one um, kind of symptom that looks like, oh, that kind of looks like ASD. But then and then someone else may not have that, have something completely different. And so yeah. you're putting together all these pictures and then you start to get a general feel of, okay, this looks like it might um, be autism. This person has maybe very concrete thinking in certain ways and they're um, very restricted and repetitive in certain actions or um, have di- difficulty with certain interpersonal rea- um, interactions. And you're like, okay, well, this kind of looks like it. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, the diagnosis itself is so, it's life-changing yeah. Um, has a lot of implications, and and at the end of the day, humans are flawed. Mm. You know, we're 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 not. You know, we 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 try to be as objective as we can, but we we make mistakes. Uh, our biases creep in, and you know something needs to be there to to check that to mm. keep you know to hold that to account to say that yes, this person has made the right you know diagnoses based off their observations, their clinical experience, but also evidence hmm. because like think think of it in a, in a, you know within within I guess a legal sort of frame uh, if you're just saying yes this person has a diagnosis of autism because I have the right to actually make that diagnosis it's like it's just he said she said within right. within like a, I guess you know as a, as a legal example it's hmm. like, where's the evidence to actually back that up what what have you got um, and and so that's where I think the, the assessments are really quite an important um, part of, of what we do as, as psychologists as well. Yeah. And I know we have a lot of conversations about our, our gripes with diagnosis being made for clients that don't seem right, don't seem to have much evidence, but they just kind of yeah. get them because the person seeing them has a certain feel and they have the authority yeah. to make the diagnosis, so they make them. Yeah. And then it has these long-lasting impacts on this yeah. other, the person's life in the way that people perceive them even professionals perceive differently because of the diagnosis being made. Yeah, it really, um, it cuts through bias yeah. in a way that yeah, yeah. clinical judgment can't. Yeah. yeah. That's been great. Um, and we have been talking for quite a while, and it's all been so good. Um, but to finish off, it would be great if we could hear a bit about, um, I suppose, what you, what you see is like the difference between working, um, working in practice and what uni life was like and the things you learned. What are a bit of those differences? And then I suppose what you're trying to learn now, so mm. where you're moving towards. Yeah, so I think I touched on this briefly before, which was about um, how in uni they, they teach you that. So like 10 session CBT, mm. let's let's do this in the in the therapy setting. And then you, you come face to face with your first client and you're like, hang on a minute. It's like, you know, those... Um, uh, block uh, toys that kids play with, where yeah. it's like they, it's like that pentagon, no, no pentagon, not that shape. It's like a three D shape, and yeah. it's got all these other shape cutouts in it, and you've got to put like the shape into mm. its specific space for it to to fit. Um, if you try and like get your cl- like, if you want your client to fit into that, it's it's just it's a pointless endeavor. Yeah, it's like you kind of have to change the way that you go about applying that that therapy. So rather than following a really strict session structure where it's like, okay, so 
Session one, we're going to cover the cognitive model. Session two, we're going to introduce thought diaries. And then session three, behavioral activation and all of that. It's like you need to go into it with the, the mindset of, okay, every client's unique, different, yeah. and they all have a different set of needs and areas that would be important on focusing on for them. So it's about like, you know, adopting those principles and, and strategies and then applying it to your client on, on an individual basis. Pattern, um, hmm. uh, trauma. Yeah, yeah, they, they didn't preface enough for that. Right. <laughs> it was like, it's like a big one. Yeah, because it's like, you know, okay, this, this is a really, um, you know, here's, here's, a, here's some therapy to, to treat anxiety, depression, and all of that. And it's like, well, that's great. But, you know, the reason this person is bloody anxious and, and depressed is, is because of what's happened to them in life and yeah. that trauma that they've experienced. So mm-hmm. it's, um, I think that was, that was a big sort of eye opener when, when I, left the classroom and then started started on placement yeah right mm-hmm. cool well thank you so much everyone for listening um yeah it's been great we're excited to keep cranking these out um mm. yeah we'll have a third one coming up pretty soon yeah and i think it's it's worthwhile noting that in the third episode we, we plan on having our first guest on the podcast yes yes um so we won't reveal who that is just yet but i think it'll be a really interesting episode um, you know, these first two episodes have been a bit more of a get to know you sesh with, with you and I, Aaron, I think like, you know, the first, first mm-hmm. episode, I think focused a, a bit more on, on yourself. Um, I just like to talk about myself. It wasn't the plan. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah. We, we had to, we had to adjust episode two according to how episode one. <laughs> to balance that. <laughs> um, and like, you know, uh, this, this episode has been, I guess, a bit more of a, of a deep dive into your know, my, my practice. But yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you found that, um, found all this um, interesting. I know I certainly did. Um, just getting a whole big information dump about stuff that you probably maybe have never heard about or don't really know much about. Mm. Getting a bit of an insight of what it looks like on the ground. That's what we're about. And hopefully we can bring you a lot more of that soon. Yeah. But now to the main event <gasps> yes. of the podcast. You almost forgot about I it. I almost forgot about it. How could you forget about I'm, it? I've nearly beer finished beer. the beer. I'm like, this is doing? Oh, exactly. my God. Okay. One final swig for the farmers. <laughs> Ah, oh, it's uh, that's good. I am always partial to a good lager, mm-hmm. and so this one, I think I'd rate it pretty pretty nicely. Mm. Um, I'm going to give this one a three point five. Three point five out of five. Okay, yeah, I that's enjoyed, all right. Enjoyed this one. Yeah, and um, and you know, I think farmers would too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Speak for the farmers now, do you? Yeah, I do. Oh, um, good. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually head of the farmers' union. Well, uh, well <laughs> if, there, if there is one. <laughs> um, surely there has to be. Um, but I think uh, this beer would go down magnificently on a hot day, mm. as all beers do. <laughs> I, th- I think this beer would, would be really good with a palmer. I think this is like a solid palmer. Oh, beer. yeah, palmer beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I think I'd give it a 3.5 as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, Oh. Almost a four. Almost okay. a four. Yeah, maybe a four. Yeah, 3.75. No, no, screw it. I'll, I'll give it a four. He's going for the four. I'll He's give it a four, Jesse. He's committed to the four. Whoa. Oh, I'll better crack another one, Aaron. Oh, no. I'm, uh... <laughs> no, oh, no. No, as always, we drink responsibly here at Beer Supervision. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we, we don't uh, at all endorse uh, the irresponsible consumption of alcohol. Especially with work tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that, that too. Uh, 
gotta be gotta be on our A game. Mm-mm. But yeah, great. Well, we will see you next episode. Thanks yeah. for listening. Good sesh. Bye. Thanks for listening to Be a Supervision, the podcast where we talk about the joys of working in mental health over a cold brew. We record every two weeks, often with guests from the mental health field. If you could leave us a rating on iTunes, that would really help us out. Or share it with someone who might find it helpful. If you'd like to contact us with feedback or questions, or even just to say hi, definitely do at beasupervisionpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find Be a Supervision on Facebook and Twitter. Our opinions are our own, the beers we drink are chosen just by us, and we don't receive any sponsorships. We'll see you next time. <laughs>